This is Austin Real Estate Investing. Austin Real Estate Investing. We'll be discussing real estate investing in Austin, Texas, and bringing you experts from all different sectors of the real estate game. Your host, Jordan Moorhead, is a real estate agent and investor in Austin and is here to help you get started or to build your portfolio and explore new strategies. Hi, this is Jordan Moorhead. This is Austin Real Estate Investing. And today we've got another awesome guest. His name is Anthony Garrett. He's a co-founder of the Investor Underground. He's an active real estate investor in Austin, and he has a really cool story. Hey, Anthony, how are you? Pretty good, man. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, so just real quick, Anthony, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got to where you are today. Like uh, in, in the real estate world, tell me about myself or just about myself in general? <laughs> well, a little bit of both, about yourself in general and then how that led into the real estate world and what you're doing with real estate investing today. Sure. So I kind of, um, as many of you guys have probably heard me speak, um, I've got a little bit of a rags to riches story. You know, it's not, not the saddest story in the world, but um, when I was in high school, my parents got divorced and, um, I dropped out of high school around the age of 17 so that I could stop getting in trouble with like <laughs> school. And uh, I was actually on probation in high school, if you can imagine that. So in order for me to stop getting in trouble, um, it wasn't going to be me stopping. It was going to be someone kind of making decisions for me. So anyways, I, I, I decided to drop out and, and that was like the best course for me. And at that point in time, I went on tour with um, a pretty hardcore band um, that was formed in Austin. And we got signed to a record label and we had booking and management and everything. And I was like the young age of 17. So I dropped everything that I was doing, uh, completely dropped out of high school, never looked back, went on tour all over the country, West Coast, East Coast. And um, that was my life was touring. And, it, you know, it's a pretty hard life, I guess you could say for the most part. I mean, it was a lot of fun, but it's pretty rough at times. Just, you know, living in a van with like seven guys all over the country. So yeah, it's, it's um, a weird life, but I think you either love it or hate it. And, you know, we loved it because we were doing what we love playing music. So, uh, you know, fast forward that a little while. It's like when I got home after years and years of touring and selling albums, I didn't really have an education or a job or anything that I could kind of turn to per se. So I kind of became like, for lack of a better word, like a bum. Um, I was like kind of sleeping on couches and, you know, kind of, kind of a little bit involved in the drug world and in and out of jail and stuff like that. So, um, you know, just kind of slumming around for the most part for years. And I just got really, really tired of doing that. And the last time that I had gone to jail, like the, the last time that I was super memorable, to me was the judge had told me, look, if you can't make it work this time, we're going to send you to like an actual state prison for a year. And that was like my absolute like eye opener. I was like, oh my God, I've got to like stop doing what I'm doing. You know, it's insane. Um, and none of this stuff was like against humanity or any crimes that were like against people or whatever. It was just my own stupid wrongdoings in life. But um, that that kind of led me to take a closer look at what I was doing, get away from the people that I was hanging out with. and my dad had always been a broker in Austin and had tons of realtors working for his company. And he said one day, 
hey, why don't you come learn how to do real estate with me? And I kind of like laughed it off because um, I always saw myself as like just this punk kid covered in tattoos, like no one's ever going to pay attention to me kind of thing. So um, I actually just didn't really take it seriously at all. And he gave me a couple books to read and I read them and thought, well, I guess I could give it a shot. I don't really have anything else to lose, right? So um, long story short, I read the books and started doing everything that him and another mentor um, had suggested that I start doing to get involved. And within, I think, 60 days of marketing for deals, what it was called, you know, like I say, quote unquote, air quotes, marketing for deals meant like nothing to me. I was like, what, what is this? Um, it was just kind of silly to me, but I followed the process because I had nothing to lose. And within, I think, 45 or 60 days, I had actually assigned a contract to another investor from like a motivated seller that I had been marketing to. And I signed the contract for $3,000 and I was 23 years old and I had never seen, you know, more than a few hundred dollars at a time, probably in my life at that point. So to make that kind of money, I just, all kinds of light bulbs went off. Right. And I thought, well, I can basically print my own money with these letters that I'm sending out. Um, and so that was basically it from there was I can do this however many times I want. And in that first year, um, I actually did 20 transactions and I surprised myself. I surprised everybody around me cause I had a lot of naysayers and some people kind of latched on to me like Dan Castro and were like, who is this kid? And how did he do this? You know, cause I was closing a lot of my stuff at his title company. And that's kind of how the story unfolded. Um, right now, I own five apartment complexes through Georgetown, Round Rock, San Antonio. I own a property management company. Um, when I'm talking about this, it's not like I generally want to just throw out numbers like some sort of uh, pretentious person, but uh, my net worth is probably around 1.7 or so. So from where I came to where I am today, that's pretty much how I got started in real estate. And that's kind of the short and narrow of it. Hopefully that wasn't too long-winded, but it gets us kicked off. <laughs> oh, no, that was great. Absolutely. So you know, it sounds like you made a pretty abrupt change there, really, in a year's yeah. time. You went from what sounds like sleeping on a couch to uh -huh. closing a bunch of deals. That's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty wild. And I kind of attribute a lot of that to maybe just the dumb timing of the market because in like 2011 and 12, that's just kind of when Austin was starting to just creep a little bit upward, like just, just starting to kind of rise up from like the down, downturn or downfall of the market in 08, 09, 07, those kind of years. And I think people were pretty receptive to a lot of like handwritten type of marketing, like, hey, you want to sell your house? And you know, I had more leads than I can handle, but I didn't really know the process. So I think a lot of that had to do with just the sheer motivation to make something in my life work. It didn't even matter what it was. I'm glad it was real estate, yeah. but you know, if somebody came up to me and offered me any kind of trade at that point in time, it, I, I would have really no choice but to kind of stick with it. But I like dealing with people and I like, I love real estate, you know? So I'm, I'm glad that it was that. Awesome. So are you all multifamily real estate right now or do you own any single family properties too? So I had a portfolio of single family properties, um, a pretty sizable one. Um, you know, I had probably flipped maybe around 85, 90 houses from like 2011 to, I don't know, 
2016 or so is when I kind of stopped doing that. I just, I didn't want to pedal the bike anymore. And I started hanging on to a lot of the deals that I was coming across on the foreclosure list, like doing a lot of loan assumptions, um, you know, taking over someone's loan and foreclosure and either renting it out for a margin or owner financing it, um, like financing another buyer doing like a wraparound kind of transaction. So I had a lot of cash, but I never really, I always had to work for it, you know, kind of like a job. I was trading time for, or hours for money. And I realized pretty quickly through like all the mentors that I had that I needed to create a lot more like passive income because the market became more and more strenuous to deal with. And a, a lot more people were marketing for deals. And I noticed that like the amount of contracts that I could assign or find a good set of numbers to flip was dwindling. And I kind of took took action on that pattern that I kept seeing year after year and saying, okay, I got to create some income that comes in while I'm sleeping. So I don't have to work so hard. So over the last, I don't know, three to four years, I began acquiring a lot of single families in terms of rentals and owner finance. So I have a ton of notes and rent income that still pays me on a monthly basis. And I'm glad that I did all of that. But to answer your question, um, so I still have those in my portfolio. However, um, really my only focus right now in real estate is multifamily. So I have a really strict criteria. It takes a good year to be able to find a deal that works. You know, all the other ones kind of go to the wayside that don't work and, you know, actually close one with a good set of financials that actually makes sense where we can operate this thing. So I guess to answer your question, yeah, I'm really just focused in multifamily and I have been for the last several years, but I, I still will take down a, a good single family deal if the numbers make sense. Sure. So what type of multifamily investments are you doing right now? So we've had all kinds of people on here from people house hacking a duplex to syndicating 200 unit complexes. What are you focused on? Um, pretty much the syndication. I'm getting closer and closer to not having to syndicate as much money. Um, just as I accumulate more wealth, you know, I'm able to do more on my own. And some of those, some of those Fannie and Freddie agency loan products require you to be on operating agreements, showing that you have operational experience on some of these things. So I'm getting closer and closer to not being, you know, not needing as much money syndication-wise. Um, however pretty much what I'm doing is, is like you said, syndicating people, um, investors to help me with my down payment for the equity. And, you know, they share in the ownership, the tax, uh, the, the, um, the depreciation, all the tax values, the income, and then all the equity that's created in between. So my, my first deal, for instance, was this crazy that I, this was my first deal. It's like I landed like a whale and I was like a minnow. Um, my first deal was 176 doors in Georgetown and we had no idea how we were going to take this down. And it, I swear the deal probably was dead like 10 times over just, you know, it was alive. It was dead. It was alive. It was dead. And, um, we actually ended up doing like a tenants in common with a really big brokerage in town that helped us qualify for debt and put some equity into it as well to save the deal because it was such a good deal. So I'm syndicating, um, you know, some of these, I, I, if they're small enough and I can do them by myself, I will as well. But anything five units and up, I'm not really doing any duplexes or fourplexes. 
Um, so that, to answer your question, pretty much I'm syndic- you know, doing a lot of syndication deals on, on larger doors in San Antonio, like 150 doors up. And I'll do smaller stuff here in town because I can actually get to it within a certain period of time. I don't have to drive like four hours away or two hours to go put eyes on something or deal with something management wise. So in town, I'm, I'm buying, you know, anywhere from five to 25 doors at a time. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Um, I don't think we've had anybody on here that's buying uh, smaller commercial deals in, in Austin. We've had people doing the 50 units or 40 plus units on here, but yeah, definitely want to talk a little bit about that and what you see going on in that market. Um, But first, you know, why Austin? I know you're in Austin, but you know, with, especially with what you're doing, you guys could invest anywhere in the country. So why invest in the Austin area or the central Texas area? Sure. Um, I know this is Austin podcast, kind of it's a real estate talk, but on the multifamily side, I actually choose to stay away from the Austin zip codes. Um, the cap rates and the asking prices and some of the conditions and rents that are coming in on those properties, they just don't make sense to someone like me. Um, I see a lot of institutional kind of investors um, or a little bit more sophisticated investor that can hang on a lot longer or has bigger pockets can, can buy those things and take them down over the long haul as where when you're working with a group of investors that kind of all have their eyeballs on you, like, what are you going to do with my money? Um, everything just has to make perfect sense. You know, you have to be able to explain this stuff and, you know, pitching out something over a 15 year, 20 year period where it starts to make sense then, or even 10 years is like, uh, I don't really know if that fits my criteria. So a lot of the bigger fish are playing in Austin and it's really hard to find something that makes any sense at all. I mean, you're talking about some of this stuff being 150 to 180 thousand a door, which is just, crazy. I mean, the, the deal that I did in Georgetown in 2016 was, I think it was 80 a door. So, I mean, you can see how much Austin is growing. It's like, it's not exactly too big for its britches, but I just kind of stay away from that set of numbers. Um, in relation to why I stay in Austin for single family, obviously that makes total sense. I mean, especially with COVID that just hit, I mean, it, it just dropped inventory. So, I mean, if you're coming across deals that you're able to make work as a flip right now, uh, I think the average days on market are like 10 <laughs> from 30 or so. You know, if you keep up with that data and stuff that's, that's posted on the Investor Underground website, um, it's just, it's nuts. So, I mean, Austin is almost a no-brainer. Um, it's, it's one of the fastest growing cities in the country, obviously, and the job growth here is amazing. We have tons of implants from Florida and... Um, California, obviously. So, you know, with so many people coming here, Austin is great. Um, however, um, with the multifamily stuff, like I said, I kind of stay away from that. And I go to the, uh, the uh, tertiary markets or the secondary markets like Georgetown, Round Rock, um, you know, maybe even South Austin. I, I actually like kind of Waco, which I guess would still be considered uh, Central Texas, maybe a little bit on the outskirts of it. Um, the prices, the cap rates and the prices that you're seeing there are just a little bit more obtainable. Um, the sellers are kind of a bit more reasonable and the financials make sense. I mean, some of the stuff that I look at in Austin, I'm like, there's no way someone is going to pay this. And and they get it. They get their price all the time. And I'm like, wow, that's just crazy. So 
Um, hopefully I'm not deviating too much off of your question, but I mean, Austin is great. Yeah. Um, so are you buying, uh, you said five to 25 units. Are you mostly doing that in areas like Round Rock and Georgetown? Yeah. So, um, late last year we bought, um, my company bought 25, I'm sorry, 24 units in Round Rock off of 79 and Sunrise. Um, I'm under contract right now to buy uh, 20 units in Georgetown. And then I also own a sevenplex in Georgetown that we just did a huge cash out refinance on. Um, and then we own a hundred and I think 116 doors in San Antonio. So we like the bigger stuff in San Antonio. Obviously it makes more sense when the bigger stuff is just, you know, it's a little bit easier on management to manage mm-hmm. and the numbers just make better sense. The smaller stuff, it just doesn't make as much sense, but I'm not going to drive all the way to San Antonio for a sevenplex to to go manage it or do something there that has to be done. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, I know everybody has kind of a number with how many doors they think they need to get to have good management. Um, I've heard 50 plus a lot. What is uh, kind of your spot where you would be comfortable with on-site management being there? Um, I think that's that's probably about right. You know, sometimes. Um, like I own a man, a property management company and we manage our assets and we manage a few other multifamily buildings as well. Um, people on my 25 unit in round rock, they always go, where's the office? <laughs> I'm like, there's no office here. It's just too small. You know? Um, I, I think I'm probably in line with uh, what your other people have said as well. Probably somewhere 40 to 50 and up is going to be on-site management. Sure. It makes it easier when you have your own property management company too. Yeah. Um, a lot of people in the beginning were like, are you nuts? Why would you want to deal with that? And I'm like, well, there's an extra like eight to 10% of the rents that I collect, you know, and I own the building. It's like, I have a vested interest. All my investors and all my partners just love that. I have the company that manages it because I actually have a vested interest, you know, as a principal in the deal. And I, I care about what happens. Um, a lot of property management companies, they don't own even 1% or a doorknob in the complex and they're going to make a salary or they're going to make their pay regardless of how the property is trending is what I've noticed a lot. So I think people actually genuinely appreciate that I'm in the deal as an owner and I'm also property managing. Of course. And so do you, do you guys do property management for other parties or just for yourself? So when I close on this 20 unit in Georgetown, I'll be at almost 55 doors. Um, I'm starting to grow the management company and sorry, I lost my, my train of thought there. What was, what was the question? You do property management for other people too? Or is it just you? Yeah, I'm sorry. So for right now, it is just us that I manage our assets. Um, but I guess where I was going with that is, um, because we're managing more doors now and we have such a good track record, like some of the numbers that I did on the one in round rock are just phenomenal. Like, um, that place had like nine vacancies and two evictions. And within 60 days I had it hundred percent occupied and hundred percent collected. And people's eyes that I know were like, how did you do that? You know? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just, I guess I'm just efficient and I'm good at this. And I just understand that things need to be done. Um, you're not going to find that from someone that doesn't own the complex. They're going to go home. They're going to go, you know, they're going to do the other things that they have going on in their life. As where with me, it's like, yeah, I might spend a lot of time 
an extra time in the beginning getting this thing stabilized, but then it kind of runs on autopilot for the most part. So we're trying to start taking on, like I have, um, you know, I do a lot of due diligence and uh, feasibility work for people that are looking to get into apartment investing and I'll go do their due diligence and the feasibility period for them. And I'll tell them the kind of the pitfalls to stay away from like, hey, in this set of financials, I'm seeing this, this, and this. You might want to ask questions about that. Or, you know, on the inspection side, I can see some of the things that are happening with the building and the maintenance. So we kind of steer people either to or away from deals with the management company as well. Um, At the moment, I I do manage um, a few duplexes that are in Georgetown for somebody else, but we're looking to expand, um, you know, our marketing to other apartment complexes within kind of our wheelhouse. Makes sense. Um, so yeah, you'll, you'll absolutely have to let us know um, when you're, you're ready to take on more clients there. I know we have a lot of listeners that are always looking for good property management companies. And I do think that, you know, a good property manager probably owns a bit of real estate too. It at least has some experience with it. Cause then it's, it's more personal. It's not just about let's, Let's make our 10% to maximize their profit. Yeah. 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 So, you know, that would be one thing that, you know, um, that we're looking to get into is more multifamily stuff. I mean, um, some of my ideas are if we hit a certain metric within being your management company, um, you know, over a good span of time, we start hitting metrics that you're, uh, that you're in love with basically mm-hmm. put, put us on as a small percentage owner, limited partner, kind of like a silent partner. Then we have all the, the, the interest in the world in making this complex just shine as bright as we possibly can because we have an ownership interest and it's a small ownership interest, but it's enough to say, look, we own part of this. We care that much more. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. You know, Anthony, you've talked a lot about, you know, you got started in real estate investing, kind of wholesaling deals and doing deals. Um, And then you kind of transitioned into wanting to be an owner, you know, rather than just somebody brokering deals. Um, Mm -hmm. What, what, what most attracted you to real estate investing? Um, (laughs) I guess at first, you know, it was like, um, I've always said that I'm psychologically unemployable. So yeah, like um, when I first got started, I actually hung up on my wall in my bedroom when I woke up every morning, um, an application to like a pizza place like Domino's or something. I was like, if I don't make this work right now, I'm going to be like delivering pizzas or something because this is kind of my like last shot to try to make something work before I turn into like a full fledged adult. Um, and that kind of motivated me, but real estate in general, from what I started knowing about it in the very beginning was it's a vehicle to basically give your life more free time to do the things that you want. Um, like at the moment I'm financially free, meaning like all the passive income that I have that comes in every month pays my bills. So I have so much free time to focus on anything else that I want to do. And that was my goal in the very beginning was I want to be my own boss. I want to be able to make things happen on my time frame. Um, you know, I think being self-employed was always something that was very attractive to me. And it still is, even though it has its ups and downs. Um, and those, those valleys and peaks as you work start to turn into hills. Um, however, I think 
to answer your question initially is just, I, I have to be my own boss. I can control what I'm doing with myself. So if you're good at doing that, you know, that, that would be the jump for me is try to find something that you can do that that's self-promotion. I mean, I don't want to go to a job every day and trade my time for money and make somebody else rich. I'd rather do the same thing for myself. And that was kind of the allure to real estate was I think I can make this happen faster than the stock market per se, or, you know, any other type of investment that people have where, where they're playing around with uh, returns. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, your stock market, you really have no control on real estate. You have a, a lot of control. So it makes it very attractive. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, that that's really what I wanted in the beginning was even if I don't make a bunch of money, as long as I can live and have that freedom to say, you know what, I don't feel like working today and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that too. Um, and I, I'd say most days when I don't feel like working about an hour or two gets into the day and I say, Hey, I'm kind of bored. I'm going to go yeah. do some work on something. I know. I, say, I know. It's a trap. Yeah. I'm yeah. very interested in the work I do. So I like doing yeah. it. And no. I, not going to complain about anything I'm doing every day. Yep. Sure. And then the moment that you stop working for just a couple hours or a day, you say, I'm going to take the day off. You just think about all the other people in Austin that are like trying to make it just as hard as you. And you're like, Oh man, I better get back to work. Cause someone's going to take that deal. Someone I know is going to get that, you know? Absolutely. Mark Cuban has the saying, and I think I'm going to butcher it. Is, you know, work like there's somebody out there trying to take everything away from you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really away from you, but somebody's trying to turn sure. ahead. Yeah, it's true. That's absolutely true. And that motivated me in the beginning. Just, I guess, having been a part of Investor Underground from when it started, seeing, speaking, you know, in front of all these, these people at a pretty young age and being pretty bad at speaking, I was, I saw all the competition right in front of me all the time. Like, these are all the people that are doing, trying to do the same thing that I'm doing, I better get out there and work just as hard because they're out there doing it just as hard as I am. So that was always like a driver for me as well. Yeah. Oh, it's fun to see everybody getting into it too, but it absolutely <laughs> is motivating. Mm-hmm. I know. I've, bi- I've been bidding, you know, and I, without knowing at first, I'm bidding against people that I'm friends with. I'm like, were you seriously on that deal too? It's like, oh man. So. Awesome. So. Um, you know, we talk a lot about our good deals and all the great deals we've had. Could you just tell us a little bit about a, a bad deal that you had or just something you were involved in that went wrong and maybe cautionary tale to people of how not to do that? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I knew you were going to ask this question, but it kind of just snuck up on me just now. And I was like, oh God, what am I going to say? But the first thing that comes to my mind all the time is I think without really knowing everybody in Austin, I think that I'm probably one of the only people, at least that I know, and at least that Dan Castro knows and a bunch of, you know, other bigger names where we talk a lot. I think I'm the only person that's had a note called due in full. Really? Yeah. I don't know if anyone else out there has had a note called due in full. And I don't, for those of you that don't know what that means, like I do a lot of loan assumptions, meaning we take over the note of someone that's in foreclosure or you don't even have to be in foreclosure really. I've taken over notes before where people are not, but inside of a mortgage clause, there's, the, I'm sorry, inside of a mortgage, there's a clause called the due on sale clause. And that means that the bank can basically call the note due payable in full anytime that they feel like exercising that clause. So I actually had, um, 
a deal like almost completely fall apart. And um, it was on a loan assumption that I saved someone from foreclosure on and I wrapped the note. Well, the bank had on the underlying loan that I had assumed, they had changed ownership and they pulled title across the board on their entire portfolio. And I'm assuming that the ones that popped were stuff like me, where it's like, okay, this person is on the loan, but not on title. Whoa, what, what's going on here? Big red flag. So I'm sure they called a few on that day, but I was one of them. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I have an owner finance buyer in this house. What am I going to do? Um, and it's all about relationships really, because unfortunately, this is one of the only deals where I've also had an owner finance buyer become delinquent and I was still in touch with the girls. So at this point I have a delinquent owner finance buyer and I also have a note that's been called due and I'm like pulling my hair out every night, not sleeping. Like, what are we going to do? So that was probably the worst deal that I've been a part of. And it all worked out in the end where basically the owner finance buyer signed the deed in the same room back to the original debtor where I assumed the note and I paid that person $200 to show up in Dan's office. And then within the same 10 minutes, that guy that I assumed his loan pocket deeded the deed back to me and I just kind of held it in my back pocket. And we filed and recorded the deed from the owner finance buyer to the loan assumption seller so that he was back in title and we sent it to the bank and I never heard from him again. Hey guys, this is Jordan Moorhead here and I wanted to ask if you could do a huge favor for me. If you could go leave a review for this podcast wherever you're listening to it, that would really help me get this into the hands of other people that are interested in information about Austin real estate investing and I'd be able to help more people. Thanks guys. Really? <laughs> yeah. So we didn't have to do anything but just put the original debtor back in title and because the owner finance buyer was in default, we gave her some money to move and show up and sign the deed back to the original debtor. But then he turned around, signed a deed back to me. And then like 60 days later, I recorded that deed and I just sold the house. I was like, ah, I got to get out of this. So it was like disaster averted, basically all just because of relationships because both the people still really liked me. It was like total crisis adverted, but I think I'm still one of the only people in Austin that's had a note, note due, note called due in full. Yeah, I haven't heard of too many people have that happen. What was the price of the home, if you don't mind me asking? This was probably four years ago or so. This was in a house in Cedar Park, I think. Like, I think that we ended up selling for two sixty seven or something like that. Okay. Um, but the loan value was still, I think, around two hundred ish. So I'm thinking, oh my god, I'm gonna have to refi two hundred k, or I'm gonna have to pay this off. I don't know what I'm gonna do, you know, because it just got even more hairy with the owner finance buyer being in there. Because it's like, if she was current. On her note, it would have been a total disaster because I can't be like, hey, deed the house back to them, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so. What, would, what would you tell somebody to avoid that situation? Or, or what do you think you could have done to avoid it? If you could do anything, maybe you can't do anything. Well, in that situation, I don't, I don't think there's anything that I could have done to prevent it because I think that the bank, it was called uh, the money source or something like that, some small-time lender in Dallas. <laughs> yeah they changed ownership 
and they pulled title on the whole portfolio. So I kind of feel like it was unavoidable. However, um, if there's one thing that I could say about if you are doing loan assumptions, the number one thing that I see throw up the red flag on loan assumptions where the bank kind of takes a second glance at things and goes, what, what's this? You know, why is this person? It's the insurance policy. Oh. So when you assume a loan, the bank wants to see the original debtor and the bank listed. Well, if I assume the loan, I also want to be listed. And if I sell it with owner financing, well, that person wants to be listed too. In case the house burns down, it goes down in that order. So if you have an insurance broker that does not know how to write for owner finance or loan assumption policies, meaning there needs to be additionally insured people. Before I met the person that I work with, and I can give his contact information out as well. Before I started working with him, I had a lot of insurance departments on these lending. Uh, the lenders call me and go, who are you? Why are you on this insurance policy? <laughs> you know, and I had, had to make up these harebrained stories and they would finally go, oh, okay, well, whatever. You know, the insurance policy has been paid. We we're just kind of wondering what's going on. And I had that happen a lot. And I finally found a guy that knows how to write those policies very inconspicuously and legal and knows how to get them into the escrow account to where they are just being escrowed and paid in full now. Oh, cool. So, yeah. That's awesome. So that's one thing to watch out for. If you are doing loan assumptions, you got to understand how to, to get the insurance into escrow with your name on it properly. Yeah. And I think you hit an important point there is make sure you find service professionals that are on the same page as you and your, you know, when you're buying real estate investments or when you're flipping houses or assuming loans, you know, probably just don't use any old person that, that doesn't know what they're talking about. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Um, what's one thing you'd tell a new investor? So let's say somebody's just getting started and they're saying, hey, Anthony, what do I do to get started here? What would you give advice to people? Um, yeah, that's, that's a, a good question. I go over this all the time with people that, that call me and I'm, I'm happy to mentor anybody that wants to get started. Um, the first two or three things that I have people do and they start working with me is number one, I have them write down their goals. Mm-hmm. And when I was first taught that being at the age that I was at, I just kind of thought it was stupid. You know, <laughs> I'm like, I have all the goals I need right here in my head, you know, but they don't, they don't exactly all start to happen until you start writing them down with timelines. And then how are you going to accomplish those kind of in a reverse order? So I always write down every year, my three month, six month, 12 month, and then I go three year, five year goals. And those are always changing, right? So every quarter I go back and I update those because sometimes I'm like, what was I thinking a year ago? I don't want to do that anymore. Um, Or I go back at the end of the year and I start crossing things off and I'm like, oh my God, I've done a lot of these. Yeah. So writing down your goals is the first thing that I have people do because um, that follows with a dream board. Like I've been, I've had a dream board for years and years and years and I've knocked off so many of those things on my dream board just from having them up there and visualizing them and looking at my goals quarterly. So that's the first thing that I always tell people is, and it doesn't have to be real estate, right? It's just business or what you want to accomplish. So that's my first thing. And then more real estate and self-employed related. Um, I want anyone who's going to work with me to time block. 
So a lot of people are trying to get out of their nine to five or their normal, their normal job into something new, say real estate. I want that person to understand where they have time that they can spend dedicating time to what they're trying to do. And without me seeing someone's time block, I'm like, they're like, Hey, I'm ready to get started. I'm like, did you, did you write down your time block for the next two weeks or the week? No. Okay. We'll go back and do that because I want to know where you have time to, to work on real estate stuff, you know, because you, you can't just fit it in where you can fit it in. It's gotta be, you know, I wake up at this time. I hit the gym at this time. I eat, I, you know, I get dressed, like all these things within an hourly block, you can kind of say, or even just give yourself a, a two or three hour block in the morning. Okay. Wake up and get ready. And then it's more specific. Okay. Go to work from this point and this point during my lunch break, I have an hour. I can write marketing letters or I can cold call for an hour. And then maybe after work, you have to start sacrificing instead of like playing video games or, you know, training your dog or whatever it is that you have the spare time to do. You got to start cutting some of those things out and saying, this is the time that I'm going to go driving for dollars or this is the time that I'm going to pull data and start scrubbing data. You know, all that kind of stuff where you have to kind of figure out where you have time. So time blocking is really big for me. And then you got to have your systems in place for the third thing. It's like, okay, let's develop systems, right? You can't be successful without constant repetition of what you're doing and uh, just absolutely staying, staying motivated and being so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh God, drawing a blank on the word. Um, I'm going to have to rephrase it a different way. I can't believe I'm blanking. Oh, persistence. You just have to be completely persistent on what you're doing. I mean, uh, you know, people I hear all the time, no, letters don't work. Mail doesn't work in Austin anymore. And I'm like, really? Because I've been doing it for nine years and it still works every month. Mm-hmm. Um, how many times did you mail? Oh, just once or twice. It's like, well, that's not even measurable, you know? So a lot of these people that I see getting started are just, they're just kind of half-assing it and just kind of throwing out what's, you know, throwing a bunch of stuff into the wind, seeing what's going to stick or whatever, you know? And it's like, you have to have a system in place to where if you're going to go market for probate, okay, you need to go pull your data and you need to scrub your data then you need to go mail your data and then you need to follow up with all these people too. I mean, there's got to be systems to what you're doing. So uh, sorry to get super intense on that, but um, oh. you know, he, the biggest thing that I would say, the number one to answer your question with one word is persistence and, and people just don't have, they're not giving it the follow up and, and doing it every day that they can. Yeah. And I, I think, um, man, I'm going to butcher this. There's a guy who says, you know, people overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in 10. I think it's Tony Robbins, but um, yeah, sounds familiar. I think that's, it's great advice there. You know, is, is write your goals down and be persistent and have systems for what you're doing. Um, for people who don't know, could you clarify scrubbing data? Sure. Um, okay. So for like probate marketing, okay. Probate is everyone that has unfortunately died. Mm-hmm. Um, and however many people, let's just say 50 people in a week in Williamson County will die, right? Well, I don't necessarily want to market to everyone that has just died. I only want to market to people who have died that own real estate. Mm-hmm. So when I say scrub, I mean clean, clean the data for your target audience because if you go mail 50 letters and only five of them own real estate, well, you're wasting your money. Yeah. And right. So I hate to like bring it on such a morbid topic, but um, 
probate marketing is pretty popular and I think a lot of people are pulling down the probate list and not all of them own real estate, you know, because I'm taking out like over 50% of the people that don't own real estate. So when I scrub my data or I have a VA scrub it, I'm just making sure it's consistent. And I do the same thing with the divorce list. You know, how many people get divorced in a month in Wilco? I mean, tons, but not all of them own real estate. So I'm scrubbing that data to figure out, are these addresses good? Do these people own real estate? Is, you know, is their name spelled correctly in the, ta- in the, uh, the data that I'm pulling down? So I guess scrubbing is just a better, you know, it means just to clean up your data for who you're trying to market to and take out the stuff that doesn't make sense. I mean, I take out a lot of stuff in Gerald out of Williamson County in Florence because I don't want to, I don't want to market to those markets. I don't want to invest there. So I'm taking that stuff out of my data and cleaning it up. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. And I love what you said about goal setting. Um, so I, I, I daily, I have a little journal. I write it every morning and I write down my goals and I actually found one of them from what's gotta be, well, it was four. I know how many years ago it was. It was four years ago. And I remember in that journal, it said, you know, I'm, I'm going to buy a duplex or buy a duplex was one of my goals and, and do this and do that. Every goal in that journal I accomplished. Yeah. And, you know, they seem like huge goals at the time, like almost not unachievable, but how am I going to do this type of thing? Mm-hmm. So, you know, just by writing them down and looking at them and working towards them, being persistent every day. You know, now I own 20 units, you know, not just one duplex. but it just, it just keeps building and building and building as long as you're consistent and persistent, like you talked about. Yeah, absolutely. Some of those bigger goals, um, they start to get knocked down in sooner time than you thought because you look at them every day and you start, your mind starts going to work and putting that energy into the world and letting it spin around up there in space and come back down to you in some form or fashion. And, you know, another thing that you need to think about when you're starting is learn how to recognize opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people, they just trip over opportunities. I'm like, what are you thinking? You could have done this, this, and this, or what? You just didn't see that. You know, you're, you can't be closed minded and you can't have, um, what I call like a lack of mentality or a scarcity mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people are just holding on to their nut, you know, like it's mine, you know? And it's like, dude, you got to branch out. You got to have an open mind. You got to think outside of just yourself. Um, You know, for instance, that's why I like doing podcasts and interviewing and speaking because, you know, this could lead to some deal in six months down the road where I make a thousand bucks, you know, I mean, you just never know. So a lot of people will actually trip over themselves thinking that nothing is going right and nothing's happening. It's like, you just got to learn to spot opportunity. And the more that you do that, the more they come and the more that you kind of spot them and take, take them down. Yeah, absolutely. And I like what you said there, you know, if if you're open to all the possibilities, like you, you syndicate, so you pool money from a bunch of other people, including yourself to buy deals. You know, you probably wouldn't have been able to buy all those deals if it was just you, if you just wanted to take everything like you were talking about, you wanted to take the whole pie. You know, I'd rather have 10 pieces of 20 pies than one whole pie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, I'm, I'm pretty creative with how I structure things too. It's actually one thing that, I don't coin myself as it, you know, but I'm like, I'm, I'm very creative at thinking about how things are going to get financed or how we can do deals. Like when I bought that seven plex in Georgetown, it also came with four duplexes and yeah. So the purchase price was 1.2 
for all these doors. And I'm, I knew that we were obviously at that price, we were paying too much, but that's what he had to have. It was one, some really grouchy old guy that just, that's what he had to have. And that was it. There's no talking about it. If it's not that, then don't even talk to me about it. So anyways, we wrote it up and I'm like, we're paying too much for, for all of this, you know? And so a couple of days went by and I'm talking to my partner and I just, we're just talking. And I said, Hey, why don't we just sell all those duplexes as is and pay down the principal on the balance of the loan. And then we'll just own the sevenplex nearly free and clear. And like my, my partner's face is just like, Oh my God, how did you even like come up with that? I'm like, I don't know. I just, I'm just thinking, you know, it's like, so I went to this small lender at this local bank here in Georgetown. I was like, look, this is what we want to do. And I told him the plan. He was like, I, not really heard of principal pay down like that. Just being able to like kind of do the underwriting for the loan based on that business model. So they loved it and we went with it. And at the end of the deal, we ended up selling all those duplexes for around 210 as is and paying down the principal balance on the sevenplex. So I think at the end of 16 months or something, after we sold all four of those, we owed like 200 K or just under that to the bank. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> like, you know, that's that's the kind of stuff you got to be thinking about all the time instead of like, oh, you know, this deal doesn't work at 1.2. It's like, well, how can it? You know, yeah. nothing is ever set in stone with real estate. There are so many ways to structure deals. Absolutely. That's one reason I love it because there's just so many ways to be creative and, and get it done. Yeah. Make it a win-win for both parties. You were able to give that guy his price mm-hmm. and you, you got what you wanted, which was, seven bikes in the four duplexes yeah and you know the lady that bought all four of those duplexes she's now so obsessed with passive income and and (laughs) what she has she's now investing with us um for her first time she's doing 100k on our new acquisition the 20 units in in georgetown it's like it just keeps flowing down you know yeah everybody won there so that's great so anthony you know it seems like you've had a a lot of mindset changes. What's your best mindset advice for people that are looking to get into real estate investing or are already in real estate investing? Um, well, the first thing that comes to mind is it doesn't really have to do with real estate per se, but um, my biggest focus on where things changed was I stopped blaming other people. Um, I started kind of looking around and saying everything that you know, has happened to me or I am in this terrible crappy situation is basically a product of me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it it was all my fault. I said, I have to take blame from everything that I've done to this point and I have to change what, what I want to change and only I can do it. You know, I, I hear so many excuses all the time, especially from newer folks or folks that might be getting burned out in real estate or haven't, you know, they're, they're kind of drifting or they're just one month away from just not doing it and going and getting a job, which I've heard dozens of times. And it's like, it's, it's that lack of mentality. It's like, I can't make it work because I don't have any money. I don't, you know, I don't have stamps. I can't afford it. I'm working too much. Or, you know, the, the sellers, they're just not calling me. My leads aren't being all the things that you hear within real estate or any industry is you have to kind of take a step back, go back to basics, maybe start blaming yourself a little bit for what's going on and change what it is that you're thinking and doing. I mean, it sounds like the most simplest thing in the world, but it's really hard to do. Um, yeah. That would be my advice is, 
And it's happened to me too. I mean, we're all human, you know, it's like, I've gotten burned out over nine years. I don't want to do real estate sometimes. And sometimes things aren't going my way with, with what I'm trying to accomplish. And it's like, I always just kind of remember where I started and I have to have to say, okay, well, what can I change? What is it that I can change to make things different or better? Um, you know, I've had my really, really low points of being self-employed with real estate where I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to make it. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that's something that we all go through with being self-employed. And then, you know, thinking positive and trying to change things yourself usually kind of fix things over a 30-day period or so. So, you know, you got to stop blaming other people and you got to change what you can change and create more opportunities in different places. I mean, don't get too comfortable. Yeah. No, I, I love that. Um, I like, I really like the book from Jocko Wilnick, his uh, Extreme Ownership, where he talks all about, you know, it's, it's all on you. You have to take responsibility for everything in your life. And if you do that, you're going to be amazed in what happens. Um, yeah. See, the old saying, if it is to be, it's up to me, you know. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Nobody cool, else man. is going to do it for you. You know, no, nobody you get out there and do it. And then, yep. you know, things don't, like you said, things don't always work out your way, but if you want it fixed, you better go do it because nobody else is going to make that happen. Yeah. And it is really, really difficult. Um, but, you know, Dan and I have talked a lot about just crazy. Uh, we've, you know, kind of uh, come up with theories a lot and, it's wild what you put into the universe, man. It just kind of comes back around in that same form. So as much as you think about something, it's kind of what you're going to become. You're a product of your environment as well. You know, I mean, if, if you're always down in the dumps or depressed or, I mean, whatever you have going on, maybe it's, you know, surround yourself with different people and, and surround yourself with the mentor that's going to pick you up, bring you up and give you different ideas about what you could be doing differently. You know, it's always something to think about too, of who, who you're around. Yeah, the environment you're in and around and the people you're around every day really determine who you're going to be in the long run. Yep, absolutely. Completely agree. So, you know, I've talked a little bit about books. Do you have a favorite business or mindset book? Um, one book that I like to read, I know this is super cliche. I mean, I might even get laughed at, but everyone's heard of it. I, when I start to have some times where I'm like, oh man, this sucks. I'm not figuring things out right now. I'll tend to pick up and start just because I've read it so many times. Uh, the book Think and Grow Rich. Oh, great book! I'll kind of just yeah, I'll kind of just plop myself down in one of those chapters somewhere, or mm -hmm. I have a poster of um, God, I don't want to butcher it. I think it's the Seventeen Principles of Success. Let me okay. look in my office. Yep, the Seventeen Principles of Success. I have this big poster in here. And sometimes I just kind of like close my eyes and point at one and hopefully it's one that kind of helps me through the day. But, uh, I'm a big advocate of Napoleon Hill and the stuff that he writes. Um, right now I'm reading this book. Um, God, I'm going to butcher this one too. I should know the title. I'm reading it. Um, I think it's called, everyone's reading it right now. It's, um, God, what is this book called? I'm going to have to like literally grab it off my shelf. It's um, the one where the guy was like, like really beat by his dad and he's like coming up and. Um, oh, David Goggins. I can't remember. Yes, yes, yes. I think it's, um, I can't something. I can't. Anyways, I you, should probably. You, know you the can't title hurt too. me or something like that. It's yeah. You, Goggins yeah. first book. 
really yep. good book too. Yep. Um, so I'm kind of reading that. I guess I don't know the title so well because I haven't, haven't picked it up in a while. That's one book I am reading right now. Uh, I think it's called You Can't Beat Me or something. Mm-hmm. I don't it's, know. It's a great book. I also like that on audiobook too. So I do some audiobooks sometimes when I'm in the gym or just out moving. Um, yep. Really enjoyed the audiobook version of that that he narrates. So good stuff. Yep. He's a, a pretty intense guy. So his writing is intense, but the way he narrates things is pretty intense also. Yeah, it's called uh, Can't Hurt Me. Can't hurt me. Yeah, great book. Absolutely recommend everybody. Can't. That. Yeah, can't beat me. That's uh, awful. I probably shouldn't have said that, but I haven't. I hadn't had the title on my mind because I just have so much stuff going on at the moment, and I uh, haven't read it in a little bit. But I am reading it, and I like it. Yeah, awesome book. He's he's great on social media too. If anybody wants to check him out on there. Um. So. You know, last thing here, Anthony, how can people get a hold of you? And is there anything you'd like to share with them that you're doing right now that you think is cool? Um, you're, uh, we broke up just a little bit. Can you repeat that? How can people get a hold of you? And, and what are you into right now that you want to share with people? So are you doing anything cool they can check out? Um, like real estate related or just anything? Uh, real estate related, you know, maybe... I know you're part of the investor underground and you guys have some stuff going on there. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, like you've said before, I am the host of investor underground. I'm kind of a co-founder as well. I've been there since kind of day one, I guess. Um, so because of COVID, we haven't been able to meet up in public and have, you know, networking events. So we've been doing a lot of content online. Um, every year Dan puts on the, um, investor underground all intensive boot camp where all of the stuff that we've been talking about in this podcast and all the content that we put out like acquisitions property management um he's put on a short-term rental boot camp with dia um just how to acquire places um basically how to grow your net worth and wealth and real estate and how to how to do all this stuff that we're always basically gabbing about in front of all these people he is a two-day intensive boot camp of just pure content. Um, There's no coaching spiel afterwards. There's no um, subscription or any of this crazy stuff where you go to these places and they kind of just always hide the end product that they're trying to sell. It's not like that at all. It's actually you, you pay for the boot camp and you get all the content and then you get it all in a PowerPoint presentation that we have. And then you also get something called the contracts Bible is what Dan calls it. So that has every contract that he as a real estate attorney has ever written, like joint venture contracts or power of attorneys. Um, You know, it shows a lot of my loan assumption contracts that I write and how to write them correctly. So check that out. He's doing it this year because of COVID. He's doing it online. And the way to find that would go be to go to the Facebook page for Investor Underground. And it's being advertised there right now. He's running a special where I think it's like half off. So I think it's normally like 1750 and I think he's doing it for something like under a thousand. And then we have, since it's not in person, um, my partner Dusty Khan and I are going to basically get on a Zoom call with everybody in the class and talk for like three hours about what everybody wants to talk about from the boot camp. So one way to get a hold of me is to find me on Facebook. Um, I'm the, one of the moderators and admins of Investor Underground. Um, 
I'm happy to give out my phone number and email anytime. I post it all over Investor Underground. I have lots of people reach out to me on a weekly basis. So um, that's one thing that we've got going on right now. Awesome. Yeah, and everybody check out Investor Underground. It's, uh, I think, 25,000 people now. Uh, 20,700, I think. It's, yeah, it's, it's a pretty large Facebook group. Um, a lot of investors in Austin. Uh, if you want referrals for anything in Austin, or if you really just want to learn about deals in Austin, jump on Investor Underground. Great Facebook page. It's added a lot of value to my life. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Well, last question here, Anthony. What is your favorite restaurant in Austin? Oh, man. <laughs> Oh, I knew, see, I knew this was coming too, but now I'm like tongue tied. Oh boy. Um, okay. So, um, I don't think this is even around anymore. However, I would like to say that I love Trudy's. Um, it's a, like a Mexican restaurant on Burnett. I think they have a couple locations just by 183. So I love Trudy's. I think they might've closed. Um, however, I love the like, um, barbecue burger at jack allen's oh my god i love that place so much um probably a little cliche as well but i just love that restaurant so those are my choices i have to check that out i have not been there yet <laughs> yeah you haven't been to jack allen's no i haven't i've been to Trudy's. oh man jack yeah jack allen's is awesome man you gotta check it out all right all right, Anthony, thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate it. I know you've got a great story here, and I'm, I'm glad you're able to share it with our listeners here. Um, yeah, absolutely, again, man. It was fun. If anybody wants to get a hold of Anthony at all or has any questions for him, jump on the Investor Underground. It's pretty easy to find there, and he's really an open book. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Have a great day. Absolutely. Thanks. See you all later.